0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in
1: person. Our speaker tonight is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg, where he's the director of the Respect Life office. Father Schenck was raised Jewish. He was baptized at 16 years old into the evangelical tradition and ordained into the Anglican tradition. A former minister, Father Schenck is the founder and chairman of the National Pro Life Center on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. He and his family came to the Catholic Church in 2004. Today, he conducts pro life ministry in three capital cities Harrisburg, Annapolis, and Washington, D.C., as well as throughout the country. Please join me in welcoming Father Paul Schenck.
2: good evening evening. blessed blessed ascension marvelous when i was in my former church i was pastor in baltimore we shared our campus with an ethiopian orthodox church and uh, ascension in the ethiopian church rivaled easter and uh, so i remember those celebrations the last one i wound up in the hospital but that's another story I can't, I, I, I don't have the time to go into it. Each of these lectures, as we look at, as Deacon said, the first papal encyclicals in the church, is a standalone lecture. So if you happen to miss one, and you ought not to miss one because you already heard Deacon's admonition, uh, but if you do, uh, you can pick up where we left off and I will have a syllabus for you every week. Now, we have these available now to pass out. Now, while we're passing out the syllabi, I want to call your attention to the Bible that I have with me tonight. I have chosen a textbook, a text Bible, for our four lectures. This is a Greek New Testament. So how many are reading Greek? (laughs) All right father is reading Greek. If you do not read Greek, this is the Bible for you, uh, because this is an interlinear Greek-English New Testament. So you have the Greek text on each page, and below each word is the literal English translation. So you have a sense of the language, its construction, its flow, and its literal rendering. Then in the column, you have the revised standard version, the English translation. So I selected this because I thought this was the very best and most useful for you if you have no Greek. I'm going to be using this myself. You're going to see me using uh, a leather-covered version. This is a lovely hardcover version. And uh, we have that available for you tonight. So I do urge you to um, pick one of these up because uh, you can follow along and you can get a sense of that literal Greek uh, behind the English New Testament. So uh, those are available and then I also have uh, some other Bible versions there for you. Now we're going to use a little bit of projection. Uh, It's a little bit of a backdrop. I like that imagery so that we again connect with the beautiful images that the church has given to us as a gift for our imagination, created in the image of God. God's given us our imagination and we should exercise it to the glory of God. And so I like to use images as uh, much as I can. All right, but we best get into it. Uh, Father's already uh, led us in a prayer. And helped us in that respect to open our hearts and our minds. So let's begin. Now, as I said, I have an outline for you. Simply Peter in the Bible. I just wanted you to see Peter throughout the Bible. And you can look up those references either as we follow along or later. And then I'm going to give you the notes from tonight. This is not 100% of the notes, but it's about 75% of the notes for tonight. So I tell you that so that you're not... Smoke isn't coming out of your ears after trying furiously to capture my lecture. I'm going to give this to you, but I'm going to give it to you afterward uh, because I don't want you distracted. All right. Our title to this series is Partakers of the Divine Nature, The Letters of St. Peter. The textus... Receptus, which is the underlying Greek version to the King James Bible, in that version the letters of Peter are called Petru Epistolu Catholica Prot, Peter, the first Catholic Epistle, and Petru, epistolae Catholica Dutera, the second Catholic Epistle. I just wanted to tell you that the King James Bible calls these the Catholic epistles. I just get a kick out of that, so I thought I'd tell you that. Now, though these titles do not appear in other manuscripts and even older ones, they help to define and describe these two potent documents. The term Epistole Catholicae refers to the universal characteristic of the author, the audience and the content of these letters. Unlike St. Paul's correspondences, which were sent to specific persons, such as Philemon or Timothy, or to congregations such as the Ephesians or Colossians, Peter wrote to the unspecific church or the whole universal Catholic Church. Now, this immediately presents a conundrum for us. And that is that Peter is called the apostle to the circumcision, the Jews. St. Paul refers to him in Galatians 2 8 in this way, while Paul was considered the apostle to the Gentiles. But it is Peter's primacy among the apostles and within the early church that solves this apparent contradiction. As we will see, Peter is not writing to the Gentiles or to the Jews, but to the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Furthermore, he is writing to the dispersion or the Christian's principally outside Palestine, and hence the universal church, away from the holy city of Jerusalem. According to the church fathers, he is being interpreted, that is translated and explained by a Hellenistic Jewish amanuensis, who is framing Peter's Hebrew thoughts originally expressed in Western Aramaic, into Koine Greek. So, we just spoke about three languages. Alright? So, we have first a translation or even an interpretation of Peter into Greek. These would be Peter's Hebrew thoughts, which he expressed in Aramaic. So we have three layers of language to deal with, not to mention our own English translation. So in this series of talks, I will be referring to this and the second letter in Greek, in Aramaic, and in Hebrew. So I brought with me, Melanie saw this and she said, oh, is that all Hebrew? And I said, no, of course not. Look at it. It's Aramaic with a Hebrew translation. So, I'll be using all three languages as we process through the writings of Peter in these two letters. As an Aramaic Palestinian and bishop in both East and West, Peter was the quintessential Catholicos Christianos, the Catholic Christian. As an Aramaic, Palestinian Jew, sympathetic to the Hellenists, that is, those Jews who had assimilated Greek culture and language, Peter was well, if unknowingly, prepared to become the first pope in Rome. The seat of the universal church, made up of, to borrow a vivid description from John, every tribe and tongue and people and nation. As we read in 1st and 2nd Peter, we will see how important this characteristic of his identity is to understanding these epistles and their teaching regarding the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 1st and 2nd Peter are familiar but still relatively neglected letters of the New Testament. For centuries, they were accepted by the church, Catholic, Orthodox, and for a few days by the Protestants, as authorized by the Apostle Peter, the original disciple of Christ. In the period beginning in the mid to the late 19th century, with its fervent biblical criticism, doubts arose as to its authorship. And after that time, the letters became less authoritative, and in some minds, they became then neglected in theological studies, in dogmatics, and homiletics, that is, preaching. So in this course of lectures, I hope to revive interest and knowledge of these two rich sources of Christology, which is the study of Christ, soteriology, which is the study of salvation and of sacerdotalism, the study of the priesthood or the the function of the priesthood. So we're going to look at background, biography, and uh, language, and then the structure of the letters themselves. So we'll lay the groundwork by placing the letters in their biblical, historical, and religious-cultural background. We'll look at the geography the historiography, and the theology of the letters. And then in biography, we'll review a brief but hopefully enlightening biography of Simon Peter, the Galilean fisherman, feckless follower, true professor of the faith, disciple, apostle to the Jews, bishop of East and West, and pope. As to the language, the Bible is a written record of oral revelation. And so language is the key to understanding the meaning of the oracles contained within the Bible. And we will read 1st and 2nd Peter in the Revised Standard Version, the English-Greek translation, which is the Bible I brought for you tonight, And as I said, we'll compare these texts with the Aramaic and the Hebrew as we move along uh, because this conveys the thought and the speech of St. Peter. Now we're going to follow a basic form or outline of the books given by Father Joseph Fitzmaier in the Jerome Biblical Commentary, but we're going to adapt it as necessary for our purposes Now, I advise that you read these letters in two sittings, one each for 1 and 2 Peter, to become familiar with the text. If possible, it is good to read the Gospel of Mark as well, which we will see serves as the theological backdrop to these epistles or letters. In fact, The earliest church history tells us that Mark interpreted Peter, that Mark's gospel contains Peter's gospel, and Mark interpreted translated it for the Greek audience. And uh, if you read Mark, you'll see how prominently Peter is featured within it. And if you approach it with that knowledge, you'll see that you are seeing the gospel through Peter's eyes, Peter's experience. So I highly advise that you read the Gospel of Mark as background as well. To quote Pope Benedict, when the first letter of Peter exhorts Christians to be always ready to give an answer concerning the Logos, the meaning, and the reason of their hope. Hope is equivalent to faith. We see how decisively the self-understanding of the early Christians was shaped by their having received the gift of a trustworthy hope when we compare the Christian life with the life prior to faith. He wrote this in his encyclical, Spesaldi. So, whence the letter, we begin with Shimon called Kepha, Simon called Peter. We know that Peter is a Galilean, a Galilean fisherman. ha in Hebrew means the circuit or the region. And the Galilee is a fascinating backdrop to these two letters. How many have been to the Galilee? Okay, so many of you have been. So you you conjure those memories again, those images, all right? Galilee was a center of commerce between the coastal plain and the east and a center of the contact between cultures, as well as the center of Jesus' ministry. Now, you're going to hear me first referring to Peter in the biography as Shimon Kepha. Shimon Kepha. First, Shimon Kepha as the Jew. As a Jew of Galilee, Peter, his Hebrew name, uh, you hear Shimon Kepha, the Aramaic, That is to say, Shimon Kepha is an Aramaic speaker who was likely bilingual with Greek and maybe trilingual with even some rudimentary Latin. Now at this time, Galilee had no rabbinic academies and so relied on itinerant rabbis who would travel from place to place staying and giving instruction and then moving on. As such, Shimon Kepha would have been exposed to different schools of interpretation within Judaism, giving him a broader eclectic religious experience than the Jews of Lower Palestine and Judea and Jerusalem would have had. Now Palestinian Judaism in the time of Peter was diverse. The northern, the Galilee, HaGalil is distinct from Judea and Jerusalem, which was the site of the Holy Temple. In fact, an early saying was "Imata rotza lahiot <laughs> ashir lelechet zefunah." hakam bao badram All right if you want to be rich go north if you want to be wise come south so the separation between the jews and the gentiles so strictly interpreted in judean law was relaxed in the Galilee. The rabbis even allowing for associations between them. The Jewish historian Josephus says that only those who were proselytes willing to live by the Torah, the laws of Moses, but also the vast interpretation of the Mishnah, the codification of Jewish law, only they were welcome within the Jewish community in Judea but not so in the Galilee. There, Jews were allowed to live and study and do business with Gentiles, proselytes, and God-fearers. And this is key to understanding who Peter's readers are, both Jewish and Gentile Christians. Now, Peter was a fisherman from the village of Capernaum, Capernaum, called Bar Yona, the Aramaic son of Jonah in Matthew sixteen seventeen, his brother was Andrew, and he worked in his father's fishing business in an apparent partnership with the family of Zvade, Zebedee. Now, don't imagine a poor fisherman living in a shack on the seaside. No, this, this was a prosperous family business. And we're going to see that in just a moment's time. Now, he was married, uh, and he seems to have been accompanied at least at some point by his wife in 1 Corinthians 9.5, a reference there. In Acts 4.13, he's designated an uneducated man, but this does not mean an ignoramus. This means a man without a formal rabbinical academic education. Because, as I said a moment ago, there were no rabbinical academies in the Galilee. The rabbis would come and teach as itinerants. So he did not have, he was not formally educated as was St. Paul in the uh, school of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. And this is all that it refers to. His character does appear at times impetuous. Reactionary, moody, and self doubting. Now, this is someone that I identify with. I grew up in a Jewish business family, and I don't know a successful Jewish businessman in my family or elsewhere who doesn't fit this description. Okay? It's part of the success. But this does, interestingly enough, coincide with contemporary descriptions of the characteristics of Galileans in the records of the time. I kid you not. But the Gospels also portray him as sincere and honest and uniquely devoted. Now, as a disciple, Peter is remembered in stark contrasts as the one who received the special revelation of Jesus' Messiahship directly from the Father. Matthew 16, 18. And as the one who denied Christ, John eighteen seventeen. He's portrayed in vivid contrasts. Jesus called him the rock, Hazur in Hebrew, the rock of his church for his unique profession of faith. But Jesus also called him Hasatan, the Satan, the adversary for his rejection of Jesus' impending death. He immediately left his boat to follow Jesus in Mark 1.17. But his faith faltered after he walked out on the water in Mark 14.30 and 31. While he boasted of his faithfulness to Christ in Mark 14.29 and 31, he denied him after the cross in Mark fourteen, sixty six to seventy two. Now Peter is called Protos Prime among the apostles in Matthew ten two. And he was first, we know, to make the true profession of Jesus' Messiahship. Mark eight. 29. I just want to do an excursus here for a moment Uh, just to describe Mark again, the Gospel of Mark, which the early church tells us was the Gospel of Peter, interpreted. The Gospel of Mark is the action gospel. Everything is in the instant, immediate, as if it were happening right now. And if we read Peter, and we read about Peter, let's say in the Acts of the Apostles, and the outline Peter in the Bible that I gave you will show you that, you'll see that this matches Peter's characteristics, his, his personality. He's an action, in the moment, reactionary personality. And Mark's gospel reflects this. So where Matthew is uh, a little more reflective, develops the moment, uh, the crisis, if you will, gives us some ramping up to it, gives us some interpretation from it, Peter's Gospel, recorded by Mark, just puts it in the moment, just sort of puts it out there and says, there it is, deal with it. And this is something which is characteristic, I think, of Peter's persona as we read, through the scriptures, and this is one of the reasons for this contrast and these uh, conflicting images of Peter. But we do find that Peter is first among the apostles. Paul tells us that the resurrected Christ appeared first to Peter. According to Acts 1 and 2 and 10, 11 and 15, St. Peter was the leader of the early Jerusalem church. Now, we're told in history he became bishop in Antioch first, right, Father? Bishop in Antioch first, and then bishop of Rome. But first we have Peter leading the church in Jerusalem, where, of course, we have the first council of the church, the Jerusalem council in the 15th chapter of Acts. And St. Peter is leading that council along with James and John. And throughout the New Testament, we see Peter regarded first among all the apostles, speaking for them and for the church. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says of Peter, Simon Peter holds the first place in the College of the Twelve. Jesus entrusted a unique mission to him. Through a revelation from the Father, Peter had confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Lord then declared to him, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Christ, the living stone, thus assures his church built on Peter of victory over the powers of death. Because of the faith he confessed, Peter will remain the unshakable rock of the church. His mission will be to keep this faith from every lapse and to strengthen his brothers in it. Close quote from the catechism. The first... Papa, the first pope, a Palestinian Jewish disciple. Have you ever thought of that? The first pope of the church, Palestinian Jewish disciple who becomes pastor of the universal church. Bishop of East, Antioch, and West, Rome, He is a truly fascinating personality. Oh, I'm afraid we we don't have the audio. I wanted to show you Peter's house. Well, let's try it. It's music. So let's look at Peter's home. For those of you who were just there, beautiful memories. Come back. Here is Peter's house. Kafar Nahum, the Kafar. It's the same word from which we get the word Kippur, Yom Kippur, Kafar, the covering of Nahum. Uh, This was a place believed to be where Nahum the prophet came from. Jesus entered into the house of Peter and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever and touched her hand. The fever left her and she rose and waited on him. Deacon spoke about this just a moment ago. Here are the... Do you remember seeing this? How many saw this? You were there? Yes. So you see here now these things he said while teaching in the synagogue of Kafr Nahum. And you can see that, well, the, this is a synagogue which was built slightly later in time on the ruins of the synagogue uh, where Jesus ministered. This is the church that sits above Peter's house. And there you get a sense of the area where Peter lived, his house underneath this octagonal church which was built by the Franciscans, custodians of the Holy Land. So you see there, you now have a good picture of Peter's home. A little blurb there for the Franciscans. The Navarre Bible says this about these letters. The main aim of the apostles seems to be to console Christians and exhort them to stay true to the faith in the midst of difficulties and persecution. The obstacles they come up against, they are told, should be put to good use, to purify them, being aware that it is God, not men, who is our judge. The letter teases out this profound and consoling idea that a Christian is part of Christ and shares in his paschal mystery. Just as Jesus in order to redeem men suffered his passion and death and then was raised from death to imperishable life, so too Christians will attain their salvation and that of many others through cooperating with or coping rather with various kinds of contradictions. Jesus Christ is their model, and it is also he who makes fully meaningful the persecutions a Christian suffers. Is that timely or what? Well, let's look at the audience to which these letters are addressed. First Peter in particular. To the elect exiles and diaspora. We look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And beginning at verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. So Peter addresses his letter, his encyclical, to the elect, the exiles, and the diaspora. Now, I believe that these terms refer to one company consisting of two subgroups. These are believers who are persecuted, formerly pagan, Gentile Christians now, I like to say that, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a Gentile and a Catholic, okay? Nothing wrong with being a Gentile and a Catholic. I remember when my youngest, my firstborn, she was young and I was taking her off to see our Jewish dentist. And from the back seat of the car, she said, Daddy, does Dr. Meisels believe in Jesus? And I said, no, sweetie, he, I don't believe he does, not the way we do. She said, why not? I said, Dr. Meisels is Jewish. And silence. And then she said, but Daddy, we're Jewish. (laughs) And you're a a minister. You're a pastor. You know, growing up Jewish-Christian today is a little little extra work. Um, And I often say, you know, that I have many friends who are Gentiles. Now, Gentiles are scary people, though. Because you know the Gentiles commit most of the crime in the world. You have to think that one through. Gentiles <laughs> commit most of the crimes in the world, right? Makes them scary. All right, so I believe that these letters are written to one company called Elect Exiles Diaspora. One company made of two subgroups believers who are persecuted, formerly pagan Gentile Christians and Diaspora Jewish Christians, these two groups, both suffered, one from official persecution by the state and the other by their co-religionists who rejected their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Now, we won't go through the details of the outline at this point. Uh, We'll do that as we move along through the letter in our next session. But let's stop here at the salutation of the letter, the opening of the letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which we just read now. The letter is addressed to the eklektos, the eklektos, the elect, and the parapidonos, the parapidonos, the exiles, the persecuted Gentile Christians, and the diasporas, the dispersed Jewish Christians. Diasporas is a common word used to describe the Jews, whether or not Christian. We've got to move now to the early church, which begins as a Jewish Christian community. So when I talk about Jews, whether or not Christian, that's the context that I'm speaking in. You'll hear me use this phrase, Jewish Christian, with a hyphen, Jewish hyphen Christian, over and over again to describe those who were Jews by birth who had embraced Jesus as the Messiah but did not think of themselves as non-Jews. They didn't become Gentiles because they believed in the Jewish Messiah. Okay, so we just have to think about that, all right? This word, diasporas, was used to describe the Jews, whether or not they were Christian, living in colonies outside the Holy Land. Palestine or Israel. The Hebrew term for these diasporas is galut. Galut. You can transliterate it G-A-L-U-T if you wish. And the Jews of the galut who were almost entirely Hellenists. That is, they were Jews outside the Holy Land who had assimilated Greek language and culture, in some respects, Greek thinking as well. So they typically spoke Greek and they had assimilated many aspects of Greek culture, including Greek views of the world. In this respect, they were considered inferior and suspect by Palestinian Hebrew-speaking Jews. In fact, St. Paul describes himself as the opposite of a Hellenistic Jew. St. Paul refers to himself as a Hebrew-speaking Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and we go back and translate that St. Paul refers to himself in Philippians as a Hebrew-speaking Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew-speaking Hebrew. They're Greek-speaking Hebrews. Okay. Now, Peter, an Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jew. Now, you're going to, I, I know you're saying, oh, boy, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek, the Latin, the English. Uh, and your Brooklynese is also confusing me. Uh, Aramaic is the lingua franca. It's the common language of the Jews of what the Romans called Palestine, okay? So it's very close to Hebrew, but it isn't Hebrew. It's another language. And uh, we divide it now into three separate categories, but never mind. Uh, One's enough for us tonight, okay? Okay. So as an Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jew, Peter chose to have someone else draft the letter in Greek. And this happens to be Silvanus or Silas. If you look at chapter 5 and verse 14 of First Peter, or rather, excuse me, verse 12, through Silvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother. As a Palestinian Jew, Peter would think Hebrew, and then he would speak Aramaic, and he chooses to have a trusted brother. In fact, he is St. Silas, who translates, and he's numbered among the apostles in the Eastern tradition. He's numbered among the apostles. And he is chosen by Peter to interpret Peter's Hebrew thinking, Aramaic speaking, into Greek. Now that's not to suggest, that's not to contradict myself, that's not to suggest he had no Greek, but now he's writing to a larger audience. Maybe he's seeking to be more precise, more careful about his Greek, and he wants to reach a Greek which... He's not able to do on his own. And so Silas does this for him. And if we read about Silas in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, we find that in Acts chapter 15, verse 22 and 23, Silas is deputed by the Jerusalem church at the Jerusalem council, the first council of the church. Silas is deputed to the Gentile converts in Antioch. So we might assume from this that Silas was a fully Hellenistic or Hellenized Jew. We know that he wrote good Greek, very fine Greek in 1 Peter. And it makes sense. He was deputed to uh, represent the Jerusalem Council to the Gentiles who would speak Greek in Antioch. And so this explains his role as an interpreter of Peter to the Hellenes, to the Greeks of the Middle East. Not only were the Hellenists, when I say Hellenist, I'm referring to Jews who have assimilated Greek language and culture, but not religion. They are Jews, but culture and language. But when I say Hellenes, I'm talking about indigenous Greek people of the Middle East. Okay, So not only were the Hellenists, the Jews, who had adopted Greek ways, looked down on by their fellow Hebrew-speaking Jews in Palestine, but they were also isolated and discriminated against by the Greeks and Romans among whom they lived. Because they were rejected by their own Jewish people, they were in danger of official persecution from which the Jews were legally immune. This according to Flavius Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian who wrote so much about this time period. So the Hellenistic Jewish Christians of the north found themselves in a terrible dilemma because they were already suspect by their Palestinian co-religionists. They were isolated and now they were rejected by their fellow Hellenistic Jewish community members, because they had now embraced Jesus, and that put them into a very vulnerable position with Rome, because Rome had already given a um, pass to the Jews not to burn incense to Caesar. But if the Jews who did not believe in Jesus were successful in rejecting them, that could put them into a terrible situation of persecution. Now, and I'll finish with this tonight, as we progress through the flow of this letter, 1 Peter, we'll see emerge in the background a Paschal theme as Peter rehearses a Haggadah or a Passover tale which provides for the backdrop for this exhortation. Haggadah is the telling of the story of the Exodus recited at Passover to remind the Israelites how God had delivered them from Egyptian slavery and brought them to the Promised Land. The first clue to Peter's Haggadah is the reference to the sprinkled blood in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Jesus Christ, and to be sprinkled with his blood. Here we want to compare Exodus chapter 12, verses 7 and 12. For Peter, the blood is of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. And you find that in Exodus chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. This language of promise, protection, and inheritance, which we see from 1 Peter 1, verse 3 to verse 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This language recalls the Passover from Egyptian slavery and suffering to the promised land, which we find in Exodus chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. The exhortation then in 1 Peter chapter 1 relies on the Old Testament prophecies. The readiness for action. And you compare Exodus chapter 12 and verse 11. And the movement toward the fulfillment of the promise made. And this is all reflected in the story of the Jewish people's exodus from Egypt. This movement is important because it embodies this sense of moving from a place of bondage to a place of freedom and the inheritance of the promise of God. In the letters of Aristobulus, Hellenistic Jewish writings that were preserved by the early church historian Eusebius, the Passover is called the Feast of Crossings, Teton diaboterion iorte. And diaboterion is an unusual word that's used again with much great emphasis by Philo of Alexandria, the great Hellenistic Jewish Greek philosopher and theologian. And he calls the Passover diabasis, for the passage. He calls the Passover the passage, and for Philo, it is an allegory of the passage of the human soul from bondage to the passions, to freedom from them. And we see this reflected in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, where Peter there says, Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who has called you is holy, Be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we see then this reflection of a uniquely Greek view of the Passover. And Philo goes on and finds inspiration in his etymology of the Hebrew word Pesach itself, which he translates in Greek as Pascha, which is probably from the Aramaic term Pescha, see? which he understands as a transfer or crossing. Philo then sees the distinguishing characteristic of the Passover is that all people, men and women and children, act as priests in the Passover sacrifice. And they do this according to Philo, in a state of ritual purity made so by the blood shed as a memorial and thanksgiving eucharistia this idea the deliverance from slavery to passions ritual purity and the common priesthood of the people develops in 1 peter chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 2 and verse 5. I can only give you the reference. I think we're running out of the time to read all of this. And so we see Peter giving to us his Haggadah, which continues with an admonition to the believers who are aliens, exiles, and slaves. This is all Peter's language. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25, which correlates again with Exodus chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. We've run out of time, so we're going to have to rest here. So I'll leave this as a setup for our next lecture. As we go through 1 Peter chapter 1, 2, and 3, we're going to look at this Passover or Pascha theme that lays behind Peter's Hebrew thinking Aramaic language translated for us into Greek. So we'll hold there, we'll let that rest as our backdrop, and we'll get right into the exposition of the chapters themselves, God willing it, in the next lecture. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Father Paul. I think you have your work cut out for you. I would highly encourage you to make a decision this evening to throw out CNN and Washington Post and whatever nonsense is out there and get serious about studying the faith because the references that Father gave you, each one of them could explode into its own Bible study. To say, what's my life about? Is it going to be about the modern world? Or is it going to be about Jesus Christ? And if it's going to be about Jesus Christ it's going to be difficult. Because Peter set out on a mission that would change his life. And he would go to lands unknown. He would go to places where languages were spoken which he did not know. And he preached Jesus Christ. And we have to be prepared to do the same ourselves. We'll take about a three to four minute break. Come back together for a short Q&A. God bless you. Okay. Question. Father uh, um the letter of Peter Do we know
2: historically in the beginning where it might have been more receptive, like with the Jewish Christians or the Gentiles or certain areas, if it was more receptive in some circles than others? Well, uh, it's written in Greek. So we would then assume that this would be uh, received by Greek readers And that would pertain to the Hellenistic Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians who were probably gathered in different congregations and places, but as I said, outside the Holy Land, which of course makes it curious because Peter begins his apostolate to the circumcision to the Jews. But as I said, he's just so perfectly prepared for this and we can see how grace builds on nature because Peter has what it takes to communicate with all three. And we see that, by the way, with some of his difficulties when he goes to Jerusalem and Paul complains that he separated himself because the, let's just call them Orthodox Jews, that's not really the right term. But the Hebrew Judean Jews do not want to eat with Gentiles and Hellenists. And Peter, for a while, tries to honor that, to respect that, but we find that that just exacerbates the problem of the division between these two. And Peter has to come to terms with that. Later on, he obviously does, which is part of the opening of the letter. So it would definitely have been received better by those who were Greek in culture and language. Yeah. But that would be just like it is today. There's a saying, you may have encountered it in the Holy Land. If you want to pray, go to Jerusalem. If you want to play, go to Tel Aviv. Uh, and uh, it's true even today that the majority uh, are not the strict Orthodox that are in Jerusalem. And it's the same 2,000 years later. Anyone else? Yes, sir.
1: Father, if Peter were not literate, would you speculate on how the correctness of the written word corresponded to what was
2: actually said? I'm not sure I understand your question. If there's an oral tradition, and one relies on a secretary, if you will, how do you suppose the speaker could feel
1: confident Mm -hmm. that what was written was what was said.
2: Well, there's a the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, and uh, that's uh, that's a pretty good imprimatur. Uh, but let's start with from the natural, which is an absolutely legitimate question. In this case, we see that in this case, First Peter, very different for Second Peter, but First Peter, Silas is a member of the apostolic band. Uh, in the case of Mark, we're going to see at the end of First Peter that Peter calls Mark my son. So there's very close, confident relationship here, and it's more than likely, not in the case of the Gospel of Mark, but in the case of 1 Peter, that Peter, or Shimon Kepha, that he drafted Silas to write this letter in Greek. Now, we'll see from 2 Peter that Peter is bilingual with Greek but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So he would have a sense of what was written. He just maybe wanted it more precise, more careful.
1: Father, well, we have an email from uh, Peter in Manassas, which is just down the road. And I happen to know Peter from Manassas, and I'm wondering why Peter from Manassas didn't drive out tonight. <laughs> but I'll go ahead and put the question, which was, what, what occasion did these letters, what was the reason for Peter writing the, these letters? Do we know?
2: Yes. Well, we know from the context of the letters themselves, and that is that, at least in the case of 1 Peter now, that the churches of the Diaspora and of the Gentile Christians were under some duress. And it was uh, probably a threefold duress. As I said, there was first the rejection of their co-religionists. Secondly, there was the suspicion and difficulties because they were Jews of Greek culture. And then thirdly, because they were Gentiles, so there was a, an official persecution which was kind of rolling through. It wasn't terribly intense, but it was episodic. And then, more importantly, was the difficulty experienced between the two groups and the stress and pressure they were in in their own communities, the turmoil because of the new faith. And so, like most encyclicals are, this was first and foremost a pastoral reaching out uh, on the part of Simon Peter. And it comes, of course, at a time where the church is now beginning to adapt to embrace and accept Gentile Christians. This is a church founded by Jews in a Jewish place, which is a fulfillment of Jewish aspirations that now are having to embrace non-Jews. And so this is part of Peter's writing. And, and that's the, the marvel, as we will see next Sunday night, God willing it, with the story of taking the Passover and using that as the background because it's something that is absolutely integral to the Jews' identity. And now I'm speaking of Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians in the church this idea of the Passover is integral to their identity, and Peter will use the very Passover to show that the church consists of Jews and non Jews, of Gentiles, members of the nations. Thank
1: you very much, Father Paul. That's it. Okay.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.